shortly. I'm going to ask you, the rest of you who are here today, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 13. We will be looking at verses 22 to 30 this morning, um, and we will get there in just a sec. I've got a little bit of an introduction that I want to present to you about this, about where we're at. Um, I think most of you who are with us at The Rock and been here for a while, you know that it's been about an 18-month journey so far to get to chapter 13. So we take our time going through verse by verse in this book, and we've been learning some amazing things. And I just want to remind us that Luke's objective when he wrote this gospel was to go to all of those eyewitnesses who were with Jesus, because he wasn't one of those people, and to ask them, the eyewitnesses who walked with Jesus when he was alive, saw him crucified, buried, and resurrected from the dead, ask them about a story, about a narrative, so that he could compile it. He was a doctor, he was a journalist, and he was very detailed. He, he probably came to faith through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, and probably somewhere between 10 to 12 years after uh, Jesus had risen and sent the boys out and the, the gals out to plant churches. And he's just an interesting individual. But his goal, his goal was that his good friend Theophilus would have certainty. Now, there's an awesome word for our current culture, isn't it? That, they, that he would have certainty. I just want to remind you that in verse 4 of chapter 1, he said, concerning all the things you have been taught. Now, sometimes we read that and we think, well, you know, all the things that Jesus said, right? The red letter stuff in the Bible said. Actually, the reality is, is that Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is really one book, Luke-Acts, and it's the continuing story of the things that Jesus did. And the reality is he wants Theophilus, because he mentions Theophilus at the beginning of Acts as well, to have certainty about everything that was being preached in the New Testament churches. So the things that he heard from Peter and from Paul and from James and from all of the apostles and, yes, what they reported Jesus had said. So we need to be understanding that because it's important. Some of the things that we learn about in the Gospel of Luke are not just the things that Jesus said, but they're delivered in the way that the apostles and the disciples also presented them to Luke and to Theophilus. So as I hope you've come to see by now, Luke's narrative, his account, is focused on, yes, the things that Jesus said and did. And related to Jesus, there's specifically about two things. Jesus was speaking, as we saw last week, constantly about his favorite subject, which is the kingdom of God. Aligned with that, and important to that, obviously, is the subject of salvation, how one actually gets into the kingdom of God. One must be saved. One must be born again. And so Jesus is teaching about that. Another thing you've probably noticed is there, there are a lot of questions being asked, right? A lot of questions being asked, those following Jesus and hearing him preach and teach with authority, especially the religious folks, are asking questions and questions. And as we saw last week, Jesus sometimes actually rhetorically asks questions that he knows they're thinking about, right? And we've seen that two or three times in the Gospel of Luke already. He knows their thoughts. He's God. It's frightening, isn't it? He knows our thoughts. Not just our actions and our deeds, but he knows our very thoughts. And so I hope also that you've seen that some of the questions I've been asking to help us you know, get on track as we begin a message on Sunday have proven this to us. I hope you've seen this. This 2,000-year-old document, approximately, is extremely relevant to today. Everything that we're reading about and that Jesus is speaking into are about the most existential things of all time. 
The same questions that people have been asking from the very beginning are asking today and will be asking into the future. Who am I? Why am I here? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Jesus, we have noticed, has not just an answer, He has the answer. In fact, Jesus is the answer to everything. And we can find that through His Word and through the Holy Spirit illuminating our minds and hearts about what it is actually saying. Now, I know that sounds like to some of us, well, like a a good Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer to everything. Hello? That is the answer. He truly is. So as you know, I love questions. I love questions. Not a questioning spirit, I want to remind you of that, but good questions. I love good questions. And for example, last week someone asked me a really good question about the message from last week, which I want to share with you. It's relevant to what we're talking about today, but this is again what we talk about in missional community groups, which is great. And the question was something along these lines. I thought leaven was generally related to things that were evil or bad, sinful, right? And I, and I replied to that individual, that's, that's a really good question. Uh, thanks for asking it. And so the truth is, uh, leaven is used in Scripture far more often related to evil and sinful and bad things. And so one might get that impression or conclusion. But also, as we saw from the context last Sunday, it is also related to sometimes good things. Now, if you go back a little bit in the Gospel of Luke, just to the beginning of chapter 12, You will remember Jesus starts off his amazing sermon with these words. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the question then is, well, what is leaven in that context? Don't have time for the whole sermon, of course. You could listen to it. But obviously, it was the false teaching and the false religion of the Pharisees. And so Jesus was preparing now his disciples for the ministry that he's going to turn over to them. They don't know that yet. And he wants them to understand that this is false religion. This is hypocrisy. And and guys, I do not want this to infect you. Because if it infects you, it will spread. It will spread to others. And it will ruin, quite frankly, the gospel. So the idea of leaven in, in that way is that it is an agent. It is an agent that permeates and influences and spreads. And so last week we saw that leaven is acting in a good and a positive way. How? It it, it is causing or an example, a metaphor for the expansion of the kingdom of God. Now, that can only be what? A good thing, right? And so that's what leaven is all about. It is more of an agent um, that is is a metaphor and a picture of something that spreads, permeates everything, and that it can be or represent something either good or evil. So today, we're going to encounter another question. And, and I, I don't want to build this up too much to say, but maybe I will say this. I think this is one of the most important questions ever asked so far. This question. Jesus certainly did. He gives a very, very, very demanding question, and pardon me, answer to it. Frankly, it's shocking. So read with me. Chapter 13, verses 22 to 30. I'll pray one more time, and then we'll dive in. Luke records... He, Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, um, we trust you today to encourage our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words. We, we thank you and know with our hearts that everything you say is true. And in that, we also know that you love us and everyone deeply. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you open our minds and our hearts to your word today, to this word, the, the inspiration that was given to Luke and to the others who recorded these very words and this interaction of Jesus with a real person to answer this real and important question. And I pray these things in your worthy name. Amen. So how about this? How about we ask some more questions? I think we're going to ask more questions this morning to get to this. For example, um, what do you think would be the top 10 list you would have, for example, of a top 10 list of the kind of objections that people have to God or Christianity? What, what would make it into your top 10 list? Okay, like top five, you know, top six for that matter. Well, as many of you know, I've recommended on many occasions, and if you haven't read it and purchased the book, you should, a book written by uh, Pastor Tim Keller, uh, who planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, New York, pastored it for 40-plus years, I believe. He has retired from that position, although he's continuing to teach and preach. He wrote a book five or six years ago, and the book is entitled... The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. Awesome book. After 40 years of experience in a very secular, humanistic, well-educated community like Manhattan, New York, he'd heard it all. He'd heard the major objections to Christianity and to who God is or whether there is in fact a God over and over and over and over again. And he synthesized it down to his top six. And I want to tell you what they are this morning so we can have these in our mind as we get to this question that is asked by this individual, this person of Jesus today. He came up with these six, and some of them are in the form of a statement, but you know you can tell there's a question behind that statement. Number one, he said, was this. There can't be just one true religion. This is what he would hear from a lot of people who would, this would be their objection. Of course, that is in the question form would be, how could Jesus be the only way? How can all the other religions of the world be wrong? Question mark. Number two, how could or can a good God allow suffering in our world? Number two, question. These were rated by hierarchy as well. Number three, isn't Christianity responsible for all the wars and injustice in history? 
Number four, how can a loving God send people to hell? Answer that one, Pastor. Number five, hasn't science disproved God? Creation, evolution, on it goes. Number six kind of flows out of that. How can anyone take the Bible literally? Generally speaking, if you speak to enough people and ask them their objections to Christianity or God, they're going to fall into one of these six categories or questions. They're going to. That said, Tim Keller in his book, and I believe it's in the second chapter, uh, he, he comes to this conclusion related to all these questions, these top six, but there's 10 or 15 others, and he kind of highlights a few of them in the book. He basically says this. He says, they, these are the primary objections that people have for believing in God in the first place, and then specifically Jesus only as the way of salvation. But he ends up calling them this. He just says this. You need to understand this, Christian, because it can become frustrating when you're trying to witness to people, right? They're nothing more than this, defeater beliefs. They're reasons for the individual being able to stand behind an objection. They want to defeat belief. So they become something called, he says, defeater beliefs. So sadly, despite how well Tim Keller or any pastor, preacher for that matter, or any well-seasoned Christian in their Bible and in apologetics answers these questions over and over again, people sadly will still cling to these defeater beliefs and in many cases until the day that they die. Anybody experience that? Somebody you love and you've been witnessing to forever at your front door, at work, in your family? I want to suggest to you that today's question, despite how short and simple it is, is the question at the heart of all of these questions. So let's have a look. Your sermon title and outline for today is this. Door number one. <laughs> Some of you might remember or think about where I got that, which we'll get to in our conclusion. Three things. Number one, the open door. Number two, the closed door. And number three, the open table. Number one, the open door. He went on his way through towns and villages, we read, teaching and journeying, journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So Luke announces us to us here uh, a different phase from last week and previously in chapter 12 up to this point in chapter 13, that Jesus has moved on from his previous events, and he's making his way to Jerusalem and the cross. He's about one year away. He's about one year away from crucifixion. And he just calmly goes from town to town, continuing to teach continuing to receive questions and objections and the ire of the religious. And so we, we assume about many things about what we saw last week, more likely about his favorite subject that he would be talking about, that he would be continuing to teach and talk about the kingdom of God, but we can also assume from this question that he's also talking about what it takes to get in the kingdom of God, how to be saved about the subject of salvation. So now before we, we talk about the question, let's, let's not miss the preamble here, because sometimes we do. You know, I, I think I've told many of you in the past when I first became a Christian and Jan gave me my red letter edition King James Bible, which I still have. It's falling apart. It's awesome. But I only read the red letters of Jesus for about two years, 
I figured those are the most important, right? I just went past all the black ones, right? Missed a lot of context and very important things, but that's what I did, right? Well, we shouldn't do that. We can't do that. Because look at what it says here. Jesus went on, important words, His way. Everything about what Jesus does is extremely intentional, and it is about His way. We talked about that in the way of Jesus, didn't we, a few weeks ago. He definitely has a way about him, doesn't he? It's intentional, very intentional, and Luke wants us to say this. And, and here's the other thing. It, it's like he, he intentionally wants, it's one year out. He knows what's going to happen, and yet he's going, no, 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 I, I want to take some time. Uh, there are more people I need to preach the gospel to. There are more people that I want to keep the door open for. And I'm here now in the flesh. So, I mean, at any point in time, he, he could have probably just said to his boys, just, you know, to the apostles and to the, the women that were following, the few that were at this point in time, because there were crowds, but there were only a few who were truly following. At any point, he could have said, okay, listen, come on, we can all see what's happening here. Let's just, Jerusalem, now, cross, death, burial, resurrection, let's get her done. He could have said that, couldn't he? At any point in time. So the preamble's important. It's important. He has more people to engage with. And then someone asks in a particular town, in a particular village, an important question that needed to be asked. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, I've got to be really honest with you. I, I, I know this story. I, I know the related story in Matthew, which we'll look at at the end. And, and yet... I needed to really, after I was beginning to write this, check out a lot of commentators. Because, like, you know, again, you want to you make sure you're as close to right as possible, right, when you get up in front of people. So I checked out a lot of, of commentators on this. And many believe that this question should be read with a specific tone, a tone of sarcasm, right? They suggest that. They suggest that, of course, they, they reason, as we've seen in Luke for some time, Jesus has been questioning and calling out the leaven of the Pharisees, right, which we have looked at this morning, and their false religion on a regular basis. And, and so what's happening here is, potentially, a faithful Jew has this question, right, and he, and he blurts it out to Jesus, and it could be seen from this perspective. You see, this faithful Jew is like, no, just a second, Jesus, <laughs> like, we're the people of Israel. We're the, we're the chosen people of Israel. We're in. What's the matter with you? It, it could have, it can be taken from that perspective, right? It was, in fact, the prevailing attitude. The attitude was if you were born Jewish, lived the faithful, although somewhat outwardly law-keeping religious life, you were saved by, by association, by what you did because you were Jewish, part of the people of Israel. And so this person is really saying in a questioning tone, are, listen, are we to understand that maybe you're suggesting that we're wrong? <laughs> We've got the wrong idea? And that actually a few of us, of course, will be saved? So as we will see from Jesus' response, he will make it clear that if that is what this person believed, He's terribly, terribly mistaken. That's one perspective, isn't it? And, and we could just leave it there, but I, I think we should, I, I'm not sure that's true, we'll see in a second, but, but we, if it's true or potentially true, we should examine that 
uh, just for a bit to see how that relates to you and I today. And I would suggest to you, if that is true, and it can be a true assumption, nothing has changed in 2,000 years, right? Many of you know my story. I, until the age of 23, I was raised Catholic, right? I was a good Catholic boy. That's kind of an oxymoron, just to be honest with you. Good Catholic, sorry. And boy. And, but, but anyway, I'm raised in, in a basically Catholic home, you know, essentially, in name anyway, Catholic home. You know, like I, I went to, you know, uh, church sometimes, most of the time. I was an altar boy, rang the bells, you know, like I, I did that, you know, and, 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 and I heard the Mass in Latin, didn't understand a thing, but, you know, I, I was there. And, and, and then there was Christmas and Easter, and like I, I did those things. I went to confession. Occasionally, I, w- I, wait, I waited until I had a very large list. I figured, you know, I wanted to... But then there was always this issue about getting, hitting by a bus before I got there. So, you know, that was, that was a bit confusing, right? And I went to Catholic schools, grade school, private boys, Jesuit Catholic high school, right? And, and, and the, the idea, listen, as, as I believed, till I was 23 years of age and actually heard the gospel, I believed this. I'm in. I'm in. I'm Catholic. I'm good. The Roman Holy Catholic Church told me that. I believed them. It's not true. Now, some of you good Protestants are sitting here today going, <laughs> careful, okay? Because most of you know that there are, is a belief out there that if you're Baptist, you're in, right? We're MB, which means mostly Baptist, so be careful. Some of you won't remember this name, but his name is Tony Campolo. He was a, a, a well-known pastor evangelist many, many years ago. He's still living, uh, written a, a number of books. And uh, years ago, he was, he was speaking at Missions Fest here in Vancouver. And uh, he, he's a funny guy, and he tells stories and stuff like that. But, he, you know, he's interesting perspective on a lot of things. But he gets up in front of, like, literally two to 3,000 people. And so you know the room is full of people from every denomination in the world, including Catholics, right, who are there. And he, he opens up with these words. It was kind of funny. He says, look, so listen, I, I'm really glad to be here, et cetera, et cetera. But listen, I just want you all to know this. Of course you understand that I do not believe you have to be a Baptist to get into heaven. And then he said, but why take chances? Right. Or <clears throat> how about those who attend church today fairly regularly, take communion every week, even give of their tithes and offerings, do you believe because this is true, you are in? The Holy Spirit wants us to really wrestle with that. He wants us to wrestle with that. You know what? I think there's another view. Possibly. Possibly. Hopefully that he may have had this person, we don't even know if it was a guy or a gal, but this person who asked this question, potentially another view and, and maybe heart behind it. So I'm not exactly sure, but I can guarantee you this from most of those who were listening, that their heart and view was probably those who were Jewish was the previous view. But what about this? Maybe this guy is a little bit like some of the Jewish religious leaders who became believers in Jesus, and maybe he's getting to the point where he's putting two and two together, and he's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Some of my own family, some of my own brothers and sisters in faith, Jewish brothers and sisters, some of the tribe of Israel, the people of Israel, 
Only a few, maybe, are going to get in. Maybe that's happening in his heart. That's altogether possible. Let me ask you, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had that feeling, knowing the truth of God's Word, and especially the truth of this kind of Word that we're hearing today, have you felt that tension, that pit in your stomach that someone you love in your own family, your extended family, in your community, is not going to be part of those few, but instead part of the many, not in Jesus' response to the answer uh, really is the answer to either view or heart behind the question. Look what he says. He says, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Wow. So, So notice he responds to the person by speaking to them. Again, this is what gives me a little bit of confusion here is that this person he wants to answer clearly, but he can see the hearts and all of the rest of those who are there. And so he speaks specifically to them. Two words are key here. The first word, which is translated in the ESV translation, which I'm using here today, is the word strive. The Greek word I'm going to put on screen for you is this word, agonizomai. It's my best pronunciation of it. You can probably tell from this word what the English is that we get from this word, isn't it? It's the word agonize in the pit of your stomach. Agonize. It is translated here in the ESV as strive, which is good. The NIV says make every effort to, which is also good. But listen, here's the point, and it's twofold. Please hear this. It's important. Entering the narrow door is not how you're saved. It's not about, oh, I'm making the right choice to open the door and I'm doing this. But it is the only way of salvation. Jesus is the narrow door. So it's only through Jesus. Secondly, once you've entered through the narrow door, you are saved and you are now on the narrow path, which we will read about in conclusion from Matthew 7 which is going to require continual striving and agonizing. Amen? Amen. (laughs) It's not the easy road. It's not the easy road. So remember this. We've studied this before about the gospel. It's important that we all understand the threefold aspects of the gospel. The first step of salvation is that you and I need to be saved and are saved if we're in Christ Jesus from the penalty of sin. There is a penalty. The penalty is death. Eternal separation from God. And so it begins with the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, illuminating our minds to the reality of who Jesus is, receiving Him, and now we are saved from the very penalty of sin. End of story? Uh Uh-uh. That's called justification. Secondly, we in this life as Christians, we are being saved. Look at Acts 2.47. Those who were being saved, Jesus added daily to the church. Those who were being saved, we are being saved today from what? From the power of sin. And that requires what? Agonismo, striving, effort. Tell me about it. Finally, and this is the precious part, 
So that's the process of sanctification. And lastly, the process of glorification is one day, one day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. Look, we all have hard days. <laughs> we all have very hard days. We sang about living hope earlier. Can you imagine waking up every day? I don't even know if we're going to sleep, quite frankly, in heaven. But anyway, just a moment by moment, never, ever, ever, ever experiencing the horrible effects and ramifications of sin. Anywhere, what a day that will be. So the second key word, of course, in this passage is the word many. Many. This is, frankly, Jesus' direct response to the question, and it's pretty much straight up, isn't it? I tell you, yes, few will be saved. That's the answer. There's no fudging it. It's the answer. Why? Why? Now look at this. This is important again. His words are important. He says, many, look, will seek to enter and will not be able so the key word there, another key word that we see there is the word seek. Now, let's be clear. That word seek is not the same word as agonismo. Seekers don't strive. They just want to check things out, right? I'm not sure if many of you have heard, probably you have, uh, of anyone heard of the seeker-sensitive church? <laughs> the attractional church, right? The seeker-sensitive church. I, me- I remember years ago, people going, we need to go to Willow Creek. Right? At the church we were going to North Lang, we need to find out what they're doing. And, and they were the pioneers, really, 30, 40 years ago, of this movement spawning hundreds and hundreds of churches across North America. Right? And, and, and why? Why did this become the thing? Well, because people wanted to be part of and learn from Willow Creek because they were growing. Like hundreds, thousands of people weekly just keep growing and growing. Why were they growing? Well, number one, they had smoke machines. Okay? Well, they did, but that's not... No, they, 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 listen, they had the most incredible, they were the, one of the churches that really began the whole process of elaborate and amazing worship gathering services, like the music, the bands, and the smoke sheet machines. It was amazing, right? They had theater, they had skits and plays, they had really, really good coffee. Okay, wait. Um, yeah. But what was the underlying belief? The underlying belief of the seeker-sensitive movement was this you know, we, we need to compete with the world. People can go to a concert on Friday and Saturday night, and then they come to church, and it's like, how great thou art. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, like we, need to, we need to soup it up, right? Like, not this morning's worship was not like that. It was awesome, okay? Uh, we need to soup it up, right? We need to make it, make it awesome, and, and we need to entertain people. And, and if we build it, what? They'll come. Guess what? They came, and they came, and they came for a while. About 10 years ago, Bill Hybels, who was the pastor of the church, uh, who planted that church and, and built that whole movement, uh, made a public declaration, and, and he made it public online and, and other journals and simply said, we were wrong. It was a dismal failure. He said, all we did for 20, 25 years was essentially entertain a bunch of tire kickers, his words. Tire kickers, seekers. Friends, that's exactly what Jesus and his disciples encountered, isn't it? 
The crowds followed Jesus. As long as he was, you know, feeding 5,000 at a time, free sushi, thank you very much. As long as he was performing miracles and preaching amazing things that I could put on my tool belt, which would have helped me to have a better life and way of life, as long as he was doing all those things, awesome. I'll seek that day in and day out. But why? What was, what was the end? Well, it was, it was selfish, wasn't it? It was for me, it was for my good, and so forth. I mean, today, we have a lot of people who will say something like this, I'm spiritual but not religious. So, you know, that th- we will check out every other ism on the planet, and occasionally we will check out Jesus, we'll kick the tires, we'll come and see what it's like, you know, we'll come and see, but we might not step to the next level, which is follow me, and then go and make, and be a true disciple of Jesus. So the problem then for the seeker is that they will not be able to enter not because Jesus is preventing them. Can we be clear here? Obviously. Come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All is the operative word. For God so loved the whole world. Whole operative words, right? No. The problem is their own self-will, our own self-will, and frankly, pride. They will continue to seek and choose what they want to believe, essentially acknowledging and allowing themselves to try and functionally save themselves. And so Jesus then answers this by saying this, particularly to this person, I think. My friend, the question isn't how few will be saved. The question is, are you? I hope that that person heard that on that day, and I hope that every one of us here today says that. So the good news so far in this message, in this text, is what? The door is still open. If you're here today and you have a heartbeat and a pulse and and you're breathing, the door is still open. Point number two, the door will close. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you. I do not know where you come from. So, so just imagine, again, we need to transport ourselves briefly. I know it's hard. 2,000 years ago, that location, Jesus, a bunch of people, this person. Can you imagine <laughs> hearing these words directed at you from Jesus? The Son of God, I can't. It's hard enough, quite frankly, just reading them, rereading them all week. I'm like, two or three times this week, I'm like, I'm in, right? That's a really good thing to be asking. I'm in, right? It's hard enough just reading this text. The door will be shut one day. It will be shut. There's no doubt from this text. Then Jesus says that people, I'm thinking this person who asked the question, might take this personally. He says that people call out to me, Lord, please open the door. His answer is quite devastating and was rather direct, especially to this faithful Jewish listener. He says, I do not know where you come from. Now, many translate that, I don't know you, like we don't have a personal relationship, and that's true. That's a good way to translate that, but it was intentional. You see, that was the attitude that they had, the people of Israel had, to who? The sojourner, the foreigner, to the Gentile. 
You come to us, you come looking for food, you come looking for a place to stay, you come looking for love and affection, and, and to be part of our faith community, door is closed. Stay out. Man, they would have heard it that way. That would have been devastating. Jesus goes on, then you will begin to say, well, wait a second, we ate and drank with you in your presence. And you taught in our streets, but he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. So then Jesus tells them that they will also have a response. They will also try to self-justify. They'll, they'll be sitting outside and they'll be like, wait a minute, come on. Don't you remember like in that small town, that village that you visited in, on the way to Jerusalem? I know, I know, we might have been some of those people there yelling, crucify you, crucify you, but we, we ate and drank with you like we sat across the table from you. We were in the same room, went to the same church, synagogue, come on. Again, Jesus responds even more directly, I do not know you. We didn't have that relationship at all. And you see, that's the point, isn't it? They knew about Jesus. They, they knew his words. They even knew their Bible in the case of the Jewish religious people. They knew these things, but they did not know him and trust him personally as the Messiah, as their Savior, as a friend. There was absolutely no relationship. So I believe you can also imagine it this way. You know people in your life and or have heard of some people say something maybe like this. Well, if there is a God, and, and, and listen, if He's a good and loving God like you say He is, um, then listen, at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure He's going to see all the good of I, I've done in my life, right? Like the scales will be like this. There'll be the good and there'll be the bad, and He'll be like, okay, you're in. Ever thought that? <laughs> I did. I'm going to age myself now, but just to give you a little bit of an illustration related to this, but many years ago, there was a game show on television. Um, I used to love it. <clears throat> it was created by a man by the name of Monty Hall. Anybody know where I'm going here? It, it was called what? Let's make a deal, right? Like people would dress up like idiots, right? Like animals, clowns, whatever, and they come, and, and then they would try to get on the show. And the whole premise of the show was basically this. The premise of the show was is that you would win little things along the way, small little things like a toaster, right? Or, you know, small gifts. And, but the big deal was you wanted to get to the end of the show and a few people would be given the opportunity to actually give up everything, trade everything they owned or what they'd won so far, I should say, for potentially what's behind what? Door number one, door number two, or door number three. And you know what was behind the, the best door, right? One of the doors would have like a gleaming brand new car, right? Or, or, or an all-inclusive 20 grand, 30 grand trip around the world or to Europe or a cruise or whatever, right? But behind the other two doors would be what they ended up calling a zonk, like, you know, 200 boxes of KD, right? Something like that, like popcorn, whatever. And, and, but here's the thing, people would gleefully, dressed up like idiots, would gleefully give up whatever they'd already earned, won, however it might be, $500 worth of a prize or $700 worth of a prize for the possibility, the chance. Door number one. This is not a game. That's a game. We can play life that way if we want, but there's an old saying, you know, when you fall from a height, 
it's not the fall that kills you, it's the sudden stop at the bottom. I do not know where you came from. I do not know you. Jesus goes on. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves, plural, cast out. It's very graphic language. Uh, but to those Middle Eastern ears, Jesus adds this, and, and it, would have been, it would have been a paper cut to their hearts. That was his intention. Remember, people were cut to the heart when Peter preached that great sermon in Acts 2, and what happened? They came to faith in Jesus. Sometimes we need those paper cuts. This was a paper cut in a major way to them. He's saying basically this, look, when you're outside the kingdom on that day, right, while you're in an agony of a much different type, you will see your own people, the great patriarchs of the people of Israel faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you will see them. And point number three, the open table. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. And he's saying, and... You will, see, you will see seated with them, with the patriarchs who are in the kingdom right now, by the way. They're not dead. They're there now. You're going to see those sojourners, those foreigners, those gentle, Gentiles seated where? At my banquet table. Yes, that's who you're going to see there. That'll be devastating. That'll be devastating for those who believe that they should be in on that day but are not. So in conclusion, first let me ask one last question that some may be asking. It might be this question. <clears throat> Why does Jesus make it so hard? Why is it so hard? Or like our friend in the story today asked, why will there be so few? Why not many of, of, of the people that I deeply love? Don't you love them, Jesus? Why is it so hard? I mean, some will point to the words like today from Jesus and feel that the exclusivity of Christianity, that Jesus is the only way, is what is too hard. And therefore, it's unfair of God to, to do that. So please, please, let's see how this story actually ends, right? That is exactly what the religious people in that day wanted, isn't it? They wanted it to be exclusive. They wanted it to be few. Just them. Nobody else. No, the truth of this story is there's level ground at the cross. For God so loved the whole world. This is a completely open table to those who will place their faith in Jesus Christ. Truth is this, and you know this, Jesus came to save sinners, of which you and I were and still are. This is good news. We're all invited in. And so we've heard it. We've heard this good news today. Let me encourage you also then to do this. Enter today by the narrow road and be saved. Don't delay. Don't delay. You have no idea what tomorrow is going to bring or the day after. 
if we in fact have breath on those days. It, it could be too late. Remember earlier in, in Luke's gospel, we read of three different people who were asked by Jesus. One was asked by Jesus to follow me. The other two said willingly, we'll follow you. And then they didn't. They had all their excuses. All of their excuses were related to the wide road, the, the road that everybody else is on, the, the way that everyone else is going. Why? Because it's easy. And that's exactly the way Jesus puts it in Matthew chapter 7, where he said it this way, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to death, destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so the, the way of the many is the easy life. Everybody's doing it. That's, that's the way everybody's living. Come on, we can't all be... Yeah, we can be. So listen, friends, please don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that tells you that you'll be missing out on everything that this life has to offer, the easy, wide, wonderful world that this has to offer to you. Because the Christian life is just so hard. Look at all the things you're going to have to give up. Listen to Jesus instead, because what he tells us is that his way is the truth and the life today and for eternity. Let's pray.